0: People say, well, you know, today jihadis, they have this clash of identity, mate. I mean, yeah, you know, we are in a better place than when we were in 1983 when I had a clash of cultures. I mean, people would give me bacon just to eat it and I, they knew I didn't eat it. But they'd only give me that for food at night in a boarding school that my family are paying for. That's the kind of insidious stuff we had to
1: deal with. Hello and welcome to Confessions. I'm Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I'm joined by an interesting and well-known guest to find out what it is that makes them tick, where their underlying values come from, and today I'm joined by the fascinating Fiaz Mughal. Fiaz, welcome to uh, welcome to my podcast. Pleasure. Um, it's very nice to see you. Um, perhaps I should say to start with that. I mean, Fiaz is the is the founder and uh, chair. Is that what yep, you call it yep, of Talamama? Yeah. Yep. And uh, I ought to say, for full disclosure, that I'm one of your patrons. Uh, indeed. <laughs> Indeed, and we're very so, honoured. <laughs> that's very nice to be. How this works here, mate, is that we um, is that we just generally start talking about you and about your family and your background and where you come from and so forth. Then we grow into talking about the sorts of things that have become important to you. So tell me about tell me about your your, your the home you grew up in and the values wow. and what it was like. That's oh what I want to know. Where okay, was it? No, Joss,
0: great question, my friend. I'm just going to use this as a therapy and reflection session. Now. Uh, <laughs> Look, I was born in, in Uganda. I was born in Africa, um, so I was born in uh, in a place called um, Fort Portal, which is just off the uh, Rwandan border. Um, and I was born in a in a nunnery. Actually, my mother's Muslim, but but the you know the nunneries were the only places which ran really good medical uh, facilities. Obviously, in 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 places like East Africa. So I was born in a nunnery, and my mum always says you were born under a picture of Jesus. So I've always kind of—I say that because I've always had an affiliation with faith. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I don't, early connection, clearly. But um, we got kicked out of um, Kenya, Uganda, because of Idi Amin. Um, so it was a turbulent period. I was six months old. Um, my family said clearly it was a very, very turbulent. Lots of people were. Imprisoned, Idi Amin was killing people in the country. He was butchering his own his own um, his own population. So we were given a one way ticket out as refugees. Landed in this country. Um, and stayed in camps. So for four or five months, my father and, and us all stayed in an effectively an internment camp. You're joking? No, I mean the, the the Brits basically at that time the Brits were quite frightened about the rise of of effectively the far right after the Enoch Powell speeches. They what they, year was this? This was seventy two. Uh, now Enoch had made his speech. Clearly, uh, hold on. Did he not make his speech around that time? I'm not quite sure. But what they, what I'm what I am sure about is that the government were very frightened to to show visibly that they'd taken in these individuals from Africa, Ugandan Asians. Yeah. And so what they did is they didn't want them visible around in the community. So they placed us in camps. Uh, where was your Where was your camp? Uh, My mum keeps saying it's a place called Stradisham, uh just off I think Surrey. Um, and so there was a camp there, and they just placed us out. When you say a camp, is it was it like an old military? It's sort an old of... military disused complex where they where we were placed as a family with other Asians as well. And then during that period of time, whilst we were in the camp and away from the visibility of the general public, um, you know, people were given offers. So Canada took in some refugees as it does now. Um, some people went off to the mid, back to the well, went to the Middle East. Some went back to Africa. My fa- my family, and my father went back to Kenya. Um, but that so each person was then dispersed. Some stayed in, and, and stayed in the UK and went to Leicester and became the Leicester Asian Ugandan community. So it, effectively, the refugees settled and dispersed. Where did you go? So my father, after four or five months, didn't like the cold in the UK and decided, listen, I, I I like the heat of Africa and just took us to Kenya. So we lived 10 years in Kenya, then in Nairobi. So I grew up in my childhood in Nairobi.
1: So you had a brief chilly Brief chilly <laughs> reception,
0: very cold. And then off we go to Africa. I have my childhood there. And then in 1983... Um, there is a coup attempt, a very bad military coup attempt now again, Kenya was always bubbling after after independence. It was always bubbling under this sense of instability because of tribal differences. But it was held together by a guy called Joma Kenyatta. but after Kenyatta died, um, a guy called Arab Moy came in, and that 's where the instability started in Kenya in terms of the tribalism really took root so In 83, the military undertook a coup, a vicious coup, actually, and um, with all the bullets flying and, again, the perception, there was a feeling that actually Asians were insecure because people were being robbed, they are being attacked in the insecurity of the situation. My father said, look, it's time I don't feel happy. Let's go and go back to England again. So we landed here in 83. Um, So I came back in 83, and I've been here ever since, but my family must have had a twisted sense of humour because coming back in 83... Uh, they sent me off to boarding school, and then they sent me off to lots of Catholic schools thereafter as a Muslim. Uh, and actually... So it's quite a
1: middle-class family. It's, quite, go a, to it's,
0: it's quite a middle-class... We were a middle-class family. Uh, the legacy of colonialism had left us with a sense of education is really important. A leg, uh, this is what it was. So colonialism had left us with this legacy that British education is really important, as as it was and as it is. I mean, in the sense that in Africa and other places still respected.
1: Um, and what, what, and so your, your parents were Muslim. What, what, uh, what, what
0: flavor of so, um, they were Muslim, they're Sunni Muslim, mainstream Muslim. But uh, over time, I have come to know and reflected that we were heavily influenced by Sufi Islam, right?
1: Right. right, right Sunni, right.
0: but Sufi traditions,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Right. So, in Africa, and, and in Africa, the Sufi traditions were, were about, uh, Music. They were
1: about reflection. There's a strong spirituality. It's a
0: deeply spiritual element around, and that's why my form of Islam is deeply internal. I don't do outward Islam. I don't do proselytizing. I don't give a damn about what people think about my religion. I am deeply spiritual and personal, and actually, that separates me from a lot of my co-religionists right now.
1: But that's a long. I mean, Su- Sufi. Islam is long, rich tradition of, of that sort of spirituality. Usually, rich.
0: Look in Africa, it was mixed with anim- animalism, right? In let's be as as religions do, they mix into the culture. In 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 Africa, it was mixed with animalism. It was in it was mixed with a heavy tradition of Yemeni folk music. It was mixed in with a tradition of Christianity into it. Um, the Sufi form of Islam you have is deeply mystical and deeply spiritual that's what I grew up with. And so I never saw people as different. I never saw people as the other. Uh, I never saw people as being anything other than, in a way, part of me. And that stayed with me.
1: So you come over here. Yeah. And then there's a difference. I mean, you know, your your whole childhood has been marked by, yeah. you know, you are the other in all sorts that's of right. ways. That's right. And then you come over here. Yeah. Now you've set up, you know, these... Uh, islamophobic watch organization and so forth so something must there's another part to the story isn't there what happens to you when you come over here? there's a
0: huge part to this story so when i came over here i have to be honest i felt a coldness emotionally of the population uh i felt where did you live uh so i i went to boarding school in kent in canterbury um so i was there for three years uh and i was there alone with my brother so uh, but I felt, I, given the sense that boarding school is quite cold, I didn't see my mum for three months on end because I stayed there. So it was an emotional detachment. Uh, the population were completely different. The culture was different, um, and it was like chalk and cheese. I'll be honest. It, I look back on it; it was it was a sense of trauma.
1: I yeah, I went. My went to a school like that, and yeah. I had the same trauma. And yeah. I didn't have your background, yeah. so you it know, was a
0: sense of complete dislocation, religious dis- dis- dislocation, uh, uh, racism. Um,
1: and so the, there was racism oh school. in those
0: in those days it was pretty open you know it was it was you
1: know that was, was where everybody was talking about packy bashing and all that. there would be packy of,
0: bashing i mean the guy my, my head of my head uh, so the the supervisor at that time for boarding school would call me chalky and the only reason he called me chalky was i was i was asian and he, he the, was basically the,
1: saying he'd say that to you he, he
0: would openly he would call me he didn't call me he didn't call me fires for two years he called me chalky and that's what we, that's the racism. So when people say, well, it's really difficult now, I go, hang on, you, you know, there were tough days. We, How old are you? I'm 48, right? So, you know, he didn't call me my name. For two years he called me Chalky, and then I'd get up and, you know, I'd get rough treatment from a lot of the prefects there. So, you know, I was probably the only... Is it pretty much white only, other than... I was 99.9%. you okay, right. Um, so, so that's what I grew up with, and I grew up with the sense that I had to look after myself uh, and that's what's kind of in a way m- it made me a person who's quite resilient but it also made me a person who felt that actually I'd lost something in the change coming here I'd lost some part of me had gone because of this clash of to effectively of cultures There was a clash of cultures enormous clash you know and people say well you know today jihadis they have this clash of identity mate I mean you know we are in a better place than we than when we were in 1983 when I had clash of cultures I mean, people would give me bacon just to eat it. And I, they knew I didn't eat it. But they'd only give me that for food at night in a boarding school that my family are paying for. That's the kind of insidious stuff we had to deal with. Bastards. Yeah. I'm so so things have changed for the better in many ways in our country. You know, we've got a better understanding. So so that was the so go? To, so you went on from there. Did you go on to
1: university? I went
0: on from there. I uh, went to uh, a, a Latimer school in Edmonton. Went on to university in UCL. What did you do then? I did, uh, I actually did neuroscience. Oh, did you? Yeah, as a degree. Now, this is, this is a classification thing. I'll tell you why. Because my family always said, you know, you're not going to be something unless you become a doctor or a dentist, right? So uh, to do that, you needed the sciences. So throughout my whole life, I took sciences. So A-level physics, chemistry and biology. I mean, straight sciences, because I wanted to be a doctor and dentist. <laughs> and the reality is, I never got there. <laughs> <laughs> and I still remember my dad saying, you know, I- I'm proud of you, son, but you're still a failure. You know, and, and my, da- my-, my dad was old school. He was old school. He was like, L- you need a career. You need a career. Right. And if you don't have a doctor or electrical engineer or you're not a dentist, you're a failure. He was old school. Um, and so, you know, there are things there are things that you just well. You you just put aside, but actually that's hard, isn't it? It's moment? very, it's very hard. It's very hard. And that's that's the loadedness of some of the elements around traditions and cultures. You know, that they don't value you for what you are. If you want to go and drive a bus, they won't value you for fire you're a good man and I you are adding value to my life and I love you. No, it's like, well, you haven't achieved much in life. It's they turn it on its head. Oh man. And so and so that's what me and many other Asians. Like yeah,
1: but of course, Fires, you've achieved Enormous amount. What so, and amongst your and amongst your many achievements is is Mama. Yeah. So, tell me about getting that set up and and what that's all about. Wow. Well, Mama is basically, uh, well, it's a national support
0: service for victims of anti-Muslim hate. We provide casework support, legal advice, one-to-one assistance at court. Um, and it also monitors and maps all of the issues around Islamophobia taking place across the country. Was it your idea? It was effectively my idea. What, I what, was, the, what was the it, I, eureka I, moment? The eureka moment was that um, I looked around and organisations were always going, well, Islamophobia is a major problem. And whenever I raised it with government and said, look, we may have an issue here and the community feels very strongly, uh, the response back <laughs> was, where's the evidence? And so I said, well, Let's systematically look at how we can support individuals, but collect that evidence to show what's going on. And the nearest, uh, the most closest form or model was around the CSD, the Community Security Trust, which was running that for anti-Semitic monitoring. So I spent a bit of time, got to know what they did. And effectively, at that time, there was a dovetailing. Government were interested in looking at this issue. Um, I They came to me because I'd worked and done s- projects before around interfaith and around faith communities. And so I think at the same time, when they approached me, I had put the concept together in my head and had put down stuff that I wanted to move forward on. And the two things dovetailed at the right time.
1: Has the, has, so since you've been monitoring yeah. Islamophobic incidents, yeah. what's the graph look like?
0: Oh, my God. Uh, I'll tell you what, six and a half years ago, when we started, um, many people, including in government, said, there's no real problem. Uh, six and a half years ago, later the graph has literally grown and grown and gone upwards um, but it has done so in an erratic fashion let me explain this it's gone it's had periods of time in 2015 16 17 where you've seen these very large spikes going up and then down so it's been on an upward trend a sharp upward trend in some instances and the sharpness comes around because of major incidences
1: so lee rigby lee
0: rigby manchester charlie ebdo One after another. And here's the problem. Here's the problem I've always had to grapple with and my team have had to grapple with when I was in charge. The reality is, Giles, um, we're in a place where it's not so easy just to say, well, here's the issue and here's the stuff we monitor. The fact is some of my co-religionists are out there killing people and they are triggering huge impacts on race relations. They are uh, triggering impacts on how we see each other and how we perceive each other. And they're triggering impacts on families and local communities who have lost loved ones, but also long-term implications. And so when you're having to deal with that, and part of my role that I've done over the last 20 years is also to try to tackle the extremism that's venting into this.
1: So you've got to, there's two... There's, there's two elements. There's, there's two, and there's also yeah. two sorts of forms of... Criticism that you get, okay, comes yeah. from both sides. Both doesn't sides. It? So on the one side, you'll get people, and I quite like you to talk about both sides because yeah. it would be really helpful. Yeah. So on the one side, you get people who say there's no such thing as Islamophobia. Yeah, it's a made-up term. Yeah. to shut down. Yeah, debate. Yeah, um, it's sort of modelled on anti-Semitism, but it's not the same as anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know. Criticism of Islam is entirely legitimate, and yeah. this is a way of stifling. You, you, you've heard all this. Yeah, before.
0: all that before. So the reality is, um, there is uh, Islamophobia. Let's let's call it more specifically anti-Muslim hatred, anti-Muslim bigotry. There is. It's documented. It's affected lives. It's led to the death of individuals in our country. It's led. It's led to the killing of individuals. We know that Mohammed Saleem, for example, is one example, up in Birmingham, and there are others. It's led to um, how people are thinking of leaving this country,
1: very much along... Is it it worse here than in other places in this country?
0: Uh, No. In France, uh, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are off the scale in many instances. Particularly anti-Semitism is a major problem. Uh, France, Italy and in European countries, Islamophobia is serious and it is, is, I think, um, pretty insidious. What we do in in our country is we have high levels because people are now, after six years of our work and others reporting it, and
1: it's not just we're not just talking online incidents here, we're not are we? talking
0: online, we're talking street based incidences. The reason why we have these uh, we have a, a large number is because people are reporting them in. The reason is actually in this country, whatever the issues, we are addressing them because people are coming forward and reporting them. But also, yes, there are, there are very large rises because of terrorist incidences, but the, the reality is six years later, Islamophobia has a much higher platform to be addressed than it ever did. And the reality is many more people are talking about it and many more people in our society are saying this is not on. So we're in a far better place, even though we have these major ruptures. The reality is, if you look at it, our country has not torn itself apart along those lines.
1: That's the criticism from one side. That's one side. And then you get all those people, you get from another side, yeah. you're going, you're overly sympathetic with the whole prevent agenda. Yeah, my God. And the get- prevent is is a sort of... You know, yeah. there's the, the something targeting children at school. Yeah, and yeah. there's something, you know, a lot of people are, that I would speak to in uh, in Muslim communities would yeah. be very suspicious of prevent. And, yeah. and uh, so
0: they're very sad. So this is the other thing. they People say, oh, we're pro prevent. Well, we're, how? We're not pro prevent in that sense. We we We're not we're not funded by prevent in any shape or form. Not, like, not a single penny of our money comes from any form of prevent money in this government we're clear about that we're open about that the second thing is i can i mean I, i've lost count of the number of times i have been in government departments saying they need to address some of the concerns in community muslim communities around prevent i've lost count of the number of times i've said to them you need to change pattern and change tact in some areas um i i'll, I'll be honest and say i am not anti prevent because i know how, in some of the cases, it has actually saved the life of a young person. But actually, the way that the government has uh, disseminated, engaged, um, uh, tried to work on Prevent, and sometimes in a very top-down heavy way, has alienated sections. And I'm pretty clear about that. They need to address this. But the fact is, the government also didn't address Prevent and its relationship with Muslim communities for many years. So this
1: is why you're in this terrible them and us approach. So... Prevent has a feeling to me. It 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 feels like you know that minority report film yeah, with Tom yeah. Cruise about pre-crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you yeah, know, it's yeah. just like all that stuff about yeah. you know, that you're a criminal before you've done anything wrong. Yeah. And yeah. Th- there's something to me about Prevent which I mean, even the name, you yeah. know, Part of me worries about I mean, the way in which the way in which people have maybe got the wrong end of the stick, but yeah. are reporting four-year-old, five-year-old kids yeah. uh a primary school. This is a nursery school. Well, you know, it's the, ridiculous. You know,
0: this is the heavy. The, 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 the fact is, whilst there's been a lot more training and support for individuals around how you implement this scheme, and I and I don't like this. I hate the term prevent. Just the the term itself is detaching people. You're absolutely right. You know, the reality is, it's a safeguarding process, right? Safeguarding process. But in the process of understanding what safeguarding means, many many individuals in some instances kind of overreact and say oh if if a kid is a bit is saying a few words which are islamic is that a problem well it's not a problem okay so we have cases where there's been overreaction we have cases where people have assumed it's just a muslim issue it's not if you look at safeguarding it's an issue around all forms of extremism and that is the debate that and discussion the government consistently failed to have 7 8 years ago so whatever you want to say the perception has stuck that it is just a Muslim issue, and it's not. And the reality is today is the government still doesn't come out and say, actually, do we need a review of just even things like the name? Do we need to have a look at how and where we are in the the implementation of Prevent? And last but not least, you know, how do we also put out the successes? Government are very bad at putting out the successes of what it's achieved. And I'll finish up by saying, you know, I know that the rise in far-right referrals has far outstripped those of Islamist referrals. Well, tell the population that it's not just a Muslim issue. Explain it far better rather than putting out some tweets and expecting the tweets to make the difference. And, and I come back, Giles, to it needs person-to-person engagement. We need ministers out there talking to communities about these issues and having open, transparent discussions. Um, yep. it's stuff that I did with um, Hazel Blears, and in those days, in 2008 when Prevent was literally focused on Muslim communities, I remember Hazel Blears going out there, and it's not singing the praises of the previous Labour government, but it, but she did one thing, and I have to give her credit for that she actually spoke openly and she took questions and she took some difficult debates and just openly discussed them, and that's what was missing in all of this
1: process Does... Um we we've just had a podcast and uh, we're with um, uh, the historian Tom Holland, oh great, uh, and uh, it's just out uh, and uh, he's a number of people who would who would who uh, I guess what the word would want to sort of theologically challenge yeah uh, Islam yeah. Um, I mean, all religions, I think it's true, all religions have a problem with violence. Yeah. Christianity certainly has a problem yeah, with Islam violence does. historically. Yeah. And Islam does as well. What's the sort of theological way of, I mean, this is an impossible question to ask you, but nonetheless, you know. What, what's the work that needs to be done theologically in well, Islam?
0: I'm a, I'm a great proponent and have always said that we need a recontextualization of the Quranic text. But the recontextualization doesn't mean you, you, you leave the text as it is, which I'm not saying change it, but all I'm saying is, for example, on the side of the page, on the side of the page, not touching the historical Quranic text, give a context on some of the difficult issues in the Quran. Why were they put in there at that time? People need to understand what's in the Quranic context reflects the historical element of what was happening in the community. And also, if you just look at the bare text and you just look at what what it means... Lots of young people don't, to be honest, um, religious literacy in Muslim communities is extremely high. In all communities? R- religious illiteracy. Is, it's, yeah, in all communities. But it's high, it, did you say? It's extremely high. Religious illiteracy.
1: Oh, religious illiteracy. In Muslim, Muslim communities, communities yes, yes, yes. is
0: extremely yes. high. Yes. So yes. many Muslims, uh, there are 1.5 million, half the Muslim population is under the age of 24 They don't know many, many of them what is in the Quran because the Arabic text does not relate to them. They don't even know. They don't understand Arabic. They don't understand how to read it. Many of them. They don't even understand the contextual elements. So they're at
1: the mercy of their imams.
0: They're at the mercy of the imams, and the imams don't relate to them. That's the whole vacuum that's been created. But going back to the text, we need to have a contextualization on the page of why certain verses were made at certain times, and there are there are violent verses. But we need to have them written on the page, on the side. I'm not saying take the verses out, why those were there. And then imams need to, young imams, British imams, young ones who are born and brought up in this country, need to be saying this verse came because there was a specific time and this is the context and this is why it's ended up here. Now, nobody's saying this is not the word of God because I hear this from Muslims, but it's the final word of God. I'm not asking to change. But if we lose the contextualization of Islam,
1: you lose the heart of Islam. Is this stuff changing as it goes down the generations of of in this? I am talking about this country specifically. So, is there a sort of is there a theological? Are, are young people just as theologically illiterate as their as their parents were with regard to this, or is there any movement in any of this?
0: Ah, uh, so so this is a good point. I mean, those that many of those who came to this country as migrants as refugees had some understanding of Islam, uh, not very detailed, but some understanding and were practicing. Uh, as time has gone on, the younger population has lost a lot of its understanding and disconnected from its roots
1: and its, and its practices. So you just get the text, So and you the text barely on its own then becomes more dangerous.
0: Becomes ba- the text barely on its own becomes more dangerous. And look at, where a lot, look at where a lot of this text has come and printed in. The whole problem about this is the Sufi Islam I know has had its soul ripped out by Wahhabi Islam.
1: From, funded by the saudis funded
0: by the saudis the soul of islam that i know the pluralism you know when, when muhammad first said he had a calling from god you know there's a whole debate and discussions in historical text around uh, uh around individuals his first followers who said are you really the prophet i'm not quite sure you are please you know show me something that and you've got this whole rich history of people in a way even mocking him and you know Nobody was killed for that. Nobody was beaten up for that. And so that rich tradition of inquiry, the rich tradition of even women saying, actually, I think, you know, I'm not sure who you are. This rich tradition of, of early inquiry in Islam has been written out by by people like the Wahhabis. The rich tradition of enjoying music in Islam of laughing with women, you've got this whole tradition which has come from the root of Islam, laughing, enjoying time with women, walking with the opposite sex, reflecting on life right at the beginning of Islam in the Prophet's life, has been absolutely erased out. So the soul of Islam has been taken out. And, and Saudis have been fundamental to that. But the books they've produced over the last 50 years for free have circulated, have flooded the market. And when you get the text, which is just bare, decontextualized you can see the problem coming.
1: You can see this and problem. And the problem with the Saudis is, uh, obviously with Saudi money as well, with oil money, that's helped proselytise through Enormously. Pakistan. and uh, I mean,
0: Pakistan has completely changed. And they've made Pakistan a religious crypto country. And that's the word I kind of use. Um, and the other factor is, in, in this country, with all the text and the money that they've circulated, they have pushed that one form of brittle Islam which is completely an anathema to the history of where Islamic tradition has come from.
1: There's so much we could talk about. There's so much we could talk about. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thank you for talking to me. Fascinating. Perfect. Fires, thanks, mate. Brilliant, Josh. Cheers, Thank my friend. You. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website unheard.com.